Hello and welcome to RT Radio 1's The Rolling Wave podcast with me, Aoife Nick This week, a tribute to the late Tony McMahon. Tony McMahon was born in County Clare in April 1939. He began playing the accordion as a teenager and was greatly influenced by Joe Cooley. He used to visit the family's home in Ennis. He was at various times a teacher, a broadcaster, a television and radio producer, but he was always a musician, always opinionated and passionate about the music and projects in which he was involved. We're not going to attempt to cover all of Tony's life and work tonight. That's a job for another day. But I hope we'll give you a sense of the man, of his music and of his many great achievements. A little later, we'll be hearing from Noel Hill and Cuevan O'Reilly and from Tony himself, both from the archives and from a more recent interview with the Irish Traditional Music Archive. But first, the music. This is from his solo album from 1972 and after that you'll hear the voice of Liam O'Connor, director of the Irish Traditional Music Archive. Music is like a, a force of nature, I think, you know, he's, he's, I think there's some eloquent uh, description by Oscar Wilde of like great art being full of contradictions. And I think Tony embodied that in both his music and perhaps in, in, in aspects of his life as well, that, you know, his accordion playing was sweet and sensitive on one hand and then powerful and almost aggressive and uh, pulsating on another Another hand, you know, depending on the tune, and but not even, you know, he even Port Nabuki or one of these things, it uh, expressive range, a dynamic range, and timbre he'd bring out of the accordion was was wide, you know, and and uh, so he was an expressive player, I would say. Yeah, it was passion. There was there was definitely a large element of skill. He was a fantastic musician. Um, think that can be overlooked he didn't necessarily value technique but he still had it you know like uh, he was able I suppose art starts where technique ends he could express himself but his ambitions certainly was to, to convey feeling and emotion and I think Tony really was at full flight you had the whole crowd wherever whether it was in a concert or in a house party or in a small intimate setting he, he would uh, when the feelings were there people felt it you know he hadn't been well in recent years but you interviewed him with the the Irish Traditional Music Archive uh, in in the last few years in his house and he spoke about lots of the um the things that were important to him I suppose the people that mattered and um and he also spoke about his own playing and slow airs and all of those things I mean people talk about his slow air playing the whole time what what did Tony feel about his slow air playing yeah um well I was yeah very Fortunate really that Tony Tony took the time to, to speak to us. Um and he he was very inspired by the past. You know, he like he sought inspiration from what he would describe as the pure drop and like the Mrs. Galvins of this world, uh Joe Heaney, uh, Sean O'Connor. You know, it wasn't uh, necessarily his contemporaries or or even the while he was very encouraging to the youth of today. He he was trying to reach back, and I think the 
that was obvious in the interview that that uh, he was had a great draw towards these older sounds and he, he uh, really valued the Irish language he got a bit like Willie Clancy you know he saw a be- an inherent beauty and that that could kind of anchor his music you know deeper with deeper deeper roots was if uh, and even when when I'd speaking about certain tunes there was a particular tune in the Joyce collection that could go we could d- clearly date back to you know the the late 1600s and he was all about this tune so antiquity and reaching back into the past was important to him and then on the other hand then like his performances with you know Steve Cooney or um, with John Kyo on, on the Yamaha keyboard like he was capable of the, it's a bit like that, that beautiful contradictions you know that he well he was wanted to be really rooted in the past he was also uh, played with the Kronos Quartet and all these other things as well so um, he was rooted in the past but his, his music was steering the direction in, into the future too you know so uh, there was a danger that people could try and portray him as this kind of mullah I think of tradition who was referred to one stage but of uh, <laughs> that he could be just dismissed as you know a purist and, and it became a kind of a danger of becoming a, a kind of an ugly word but I don't think Tony was a widely read man he was someone who had world interests in art he was he was as deep as they, as they come and, and deeply complex character himself but uh, he lived for art, so uh, you would know that it, two minutes into his house, even the, uh, his taste in, in interior design and even the small details of a business card, he, he was very particular, very artistic, and uh, he certainly wasn't uh, close-minded. You know, uh, he knew what he liked, and yeah, he would say that, and that, that could be certainly upset. Uh, people <laughs> myself included at times but he was honest and he couldn't hide that you know there was obviously Tony the musician there was Tony the broadcaster Tony the producer but there was also Tony the collector because I know because I delve into it regularly you know the archive in, in RTE is, is uh, you know owes an awful lot to him and to the work he did but he, he, he did have that string to his bow as well didn't he that um, he was a collector and he, he, he recorded musicians for the for posterity and for the archive yeah, I think that's that's a huge part of his legacy. Eva, I totally agree. Even the recordings we're talking about, Mrs. Galvin as well. You know, Tony chased down those recordings from Mrs. Galvin's son in in the UK, and and he donated them here to the Irish Tradition Music Archive. Basically, it comes down to that philosophy that he had a connecting to the past would make for better art and in, in the media now and and shaped a better way for the tradition in the future. You know, so I think that. The practical element of archiving and having access to materials and for that to be a force of inspiration for or a source of inspiration what well, you know he lived by that and his legacy speaks to that now and just finally you do, you organized a tribute day to him in at the Skullsari Willie Clancy in 2019 um how did he feel about that I mean that was sort of three hours of people you know complimenting him what was his reaction to that yeah, yeah. um it was going to, uh, and there was a kind of an outburst of, of emotion from from the audience, and uh, it was a packed hall in Milton, and and a lot of uh, heavy tributes uh, paid to to Tony, and I, there was photographs and all the rest, and I lent into Tony and said, um, 
thanking him for for all his help and I hope you enjoyed it. I said, he said, Liam, get me out of here. I want to have a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we kind of escaped out the back and um, and uh, there was a couple of lovely photographs of people there, but uh, we escaped out to a, um, he, he had another short interview I think with Nationwide and then escaped to a to a pub around the corner to take the back of Blondes and he, he uh, but he did call a day later we went back to Dublin later that night and he called and it did mean something to him and uh, he also uh, watched that again about um, you know uh, earlier this year during during the the lockdown as well we had a, a laptop sent over to him and he watched it and um, you know in the in the the piece of his own cottage and was able to to reflect and hear listen to those tributes. So he he, he got a good send off. And I have to say that that's um, largely down to Skull Sour Willie Clancy that that um, initiated that and, and made it happen. He didn't play in recent years because he was suffering from from Parkinson's and he, and he, his fingers wouldn't do what he wanted wanted them to do. But you know, um, in twenty fourteen he had the farewell to music gig, and there was a big event. And then two years later, he was still playing, and he was making. You know, music was coming out. So, did he play at all in recent years, or, or how? What was going on? I, well, I, I, I know the last time I played with him, uh, I don't know the date, but it, it was after Slaughter and Goal, anyways. But um, I think he he had ambitions elsewhere. I think with. You know, that stage in his life that he certainly music was becoming technically more of a struggle and uh, he was gravitating towards more and more t- towards slow airs um the high octane stuff he did with noel hill the good degree you know that spectacular energy that would throw you throw music under your feet and, and keep you there you know and then the stuff with steve cooney there was a different pace to that and different little to it again i think with it was slow airs and i I think his ambitions lay with writing at that stage, and he—I think he would have liked to deliver, have delivered on that, and that's part of his story. You know, he was an artist. If he had another hundred years and good health, he'd keep evolving, keep changing, and uh, it was never-ending. He did. There was a lovely line. He said that um, while his ill health had robbed him of his music, and uh, Mister Parkinson had had made things increasingly difficult that his uh, and made his writing dependent on others to help him that it couldn't possibly steal his love for traditional music and song and um, I know that 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 quote lent heavy on me when the Friday he died I was fortunate enough to get a taxi over to the to the hospital and um, and I got to play one or two tunes that he he liked, you know, the race of Valuli and uh, Rev Twig and Garrick, and and then I was making a, a mess of uh, <laughs> the Ace and Juice of piping with uh, Mrs. Galvin's version. I could never quite get the grips with myself, and I knew, oh God, pull the handbrake on this one. And uh, I got recordings out of Mrs. Galvin and and uh, Tommy Potts as well. So he the, the last music he heard was of Tommy Potts, which was by far his favourite fiddle player. Um, yeah, the music was, wasn't just a thing for him, it was everything for him, I think.
The Ash Plant from the album Noel Hill and Tony McMahon in Knocknagree. Tony McMahon and Noel Hill played and worked together over many years. And I spoke to Noel and he told me about that famous night in Dan Connell's in Knocknagree. It's hard to talk about you and about Tony together without talking about Knocknagree and the album in Knocknagree. Tell me about the making of that album because that that just encapsulates a lot of the things that you're talking about. I think the joy and the rhythm and the, the fire and everything in those dance tunes is so, so alive on that recording. Yes, there it is. What I'm saying is the, the way we were thinking about the music was so much uh, uh, so aligned. And uh, it was, it, many might have said that a concertina and accordion, how could that work? But because of our, our, our background and that, we were on safe enough ground and it, it seemed to work and the, Tony spoke about the joie de vivre, you know, and he, 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 he got excited uh, by music. Tony, uh, Tony was a high-octane man when it came to his uh, playing, but he had, he had a really sharp intellect. He was a fantastic brain and he, he was always capable of um, just throwing the petrol in just to fire up a conversation, fire up a uh, discussion about music or some some aspect of life. And, uh, you know, sometimes very contentious. But to go back to Knocknagree, that celebration and that high-octane, torrential kind of aspect of Tony's personality is is all over. His music, and that's when I spoke about the dance music, is in that, and it's in Knocknagree. That's tinged with a sadness as well that people might not know, but I had left uh, Claire on the uh, evening to drive to uh, to Knocknagree and the Cork Kerry border, having left the graveyard in Lissy Casey where my uncle, God be good to him, Parga Creek, had been buried. Now, he was also a great friend of Tony McMahon's. In fact, when Tony was in training college in Dublin, he used to take a, a lift with my uncle down to Clare when my uncle would be going down and uh, so they were good friends and uh, so I buried my my uncle who was really a very huge in- influence on me and down to Knocknagree and uh, it just came together the people were gathered before we arrived and um, we didn't have much choice but to get ourselves in there and uh, the mics and all were set up and uh, it was it was like a, um, it, was, it was really it was it was like a charge really t- ready to go off you know it was thronged with people and I, t- I when I looked in first I said oh my god how are we going to manage this but we, Dan Connell was the fatty he was the owner of the pub he was very well able to you know navigate the people that had arrived and make sure that they he kept this level of order but then when it came to playing like tony pulled the choke out i pulled the choke out and uh, dan connell said no boys and boom 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 and that was it and tony and myself used to do that occasionally you know we'd start a concert you know and i'd look over at tony and he'd just go like Kitty Lenan of the Kilfenora Cayley Band. Boom, 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 boom. Burtle, burtle. And that's how that happened. And uh, literally, uh, we got that recording done in the length of time as it takes to play it. I mean, it's full of it's full of little uh, bits and pieces that are not 100%, but that's not the point. We got the, the sound of the country house out on a recording, which was exactly what we were trying to do. 
there were a number of programs I did. I think I did three programs on television. One of them uh, is is still uh, it, it was preserved. It was Dave Dane of Kiol that he presented, and it was around 1971 or so. And I played on that. I'd love to have seen the other two programs I had done in Dublin prior to that. But anyway, uh, that would be the f- around the first time I met him. And uh, then in the late 70s, um, I had finished out my secondary school uh, education. I was in Dublin and I met Tony quite frequently then. And um, probably the very late 70s, I would go to his house a lot and in the early 80s. Possibly uh, two evenings a week or two nights a week, uh, we... We seem to get on uh, well on on a number of in a number of ways on a number of uh, topics like music. We were we were both uh, of a certain type of. I had a certain impatience with the instrument I was playing, and Tony knew that he recognised that in me, and he could see himself as well. Uh, he had a certain uh, discontent with uh, his playing the accordion, and. Uh, I had that, and we, we it was mostly talking. Uh, that friendship developed, and uh, we seemed to have that uh, alignment. And uh, it developed from there, and uh, the question has been asked, when did I start playing with him? And I cannot recall. It seemed to have grown out of those conversations we had, and I, as I say, his house in Ratgar Road at the time. And... Uh, it grew out of that, and we were next thing we were playing together. We worked together, of course, in RTE. Uh, Tony had asked me to come in on the uh, Ashling Gal program he was doing on film. Uh, it was a beautiful program. I did. I was involved in a couple of those. Then the the Bring Down the Lamp series uh, that was revived from, by RTE. I worked in that as the music coordinator, and um, then we did the. Uh, Pure Drop series. There were others involved in that as well, but uh, I think we did 104 programmes, if, if my memory serves me right, and that I was involved in. And when I see th- these snippets today come being played back on Come West Along the Road, it just brings back all the memories of, oh, I was there, I remember all the, the legwork that was put into that. And one thing that, uh, uh, in, the, in terms of working uh, on the television programmes uh, with, with Tony, was that we we secured uh, funding because there were those uh, that thought that going up for these characters in County Leitrim or back into West Kerry or Clare or whatever the people that didn't want to be on television and who were you know we had to, we had to put a lot of energy into and and resources to getting them for programs there were people who didn't think that was worthwhile and these people shouldn't be on television in the first place but uh, Tony uh, had you know I think people envied the the, the position he held in terms of we worked down in that corner of uh, of the uh, little office in RTE it was open uh, open plan office but w- basically because of McMahon it, we were unassailable uh, people were just give him what he like whatever the resources were and it was expensive if you compare what we were doing for a commercial half hour or 26 minutes that time of a television program on a Tuesday evening it was enormous money uh, invested and resources to get that, but McMahon, because of his of this, he, we were unassailable. He had set up this uh, iron uh, fence around him. It's just give him. It's not worth going to battle with McMahon, and we uh, and all to the benefit of the music. As it turns out, now when one looks back, 
he had that and he knew the importance of his work and the big red tape of archiving onto all of those because again we were thinking of all the stuff that was lost and wiped of previous programmes done back in the earlier decades you know suppose you've you've sort of said it there but his approach then because he had such an influence on broadcasting and television and radio and the programs so if you had to sum up what his goal was with those programs or what his approach was what would you say uh i think tony tony was um he was very lonely uh, uh, about what had gone before and what had not been documented or recorded he had a great sadness in him about that that sadness was in his, his playing as well he had a great he did there was a great feeling of loss of the language for instance <coughs> and uh, all of what that represented in in the way it was reflected in the music and uh, he he went after that and that is uh, very evident in the work he did over the years and uh, he also wanted to stop people in their tracks you know he was he was one of those uh, disruptors, you know, that would uh, try and stop a person in their tracks and to think about this material material differently, uh, to give it the status that he felt it should have got prior to that and properly uh, deserved. And, as I say, stop people in their tracks. And, I mean, in, in these radio programmes, Tony, like, would play the same track twice let's have a listen to that again that was breaking the rules of uh, playing uh, tracks of music on the radio to say it was, uh, and of course when we uh, when I listen to something of greatness I will go back I say I need to listen to that again there is something just in uh, some detail I would and, and again and again and again but Tony would do that on radio and of course that was a, a that wasn't the normal uh, procedure and uh, he was he was a task mask master too, you know. Tony was uh, a contrary type, you know. That would, uh, I know he at one time he asked he would have some item that was being done, and he's known to have asked for an aeroplane flying in the key of D, because the the, the music coming after it was being played on a set of pipes in D, and uh, the, the sound of the aeroplane plane had to be in D as well. <laughs> he came up with uh, with oddities like that, you know, but. Uh, one would have to. Uh, he was a difficult man uh, to to deal with at uh, at times, but one would have to have high regard for the target that he was aiming at. Just watching you talk about Knocknagree and playing with him, and you're beaming, and people on the radio obviously can't see you beaming. But you'll miss that. You'll miss that connection, that musical connection with him. I'd say. Yes, yeah, and I, I miss all of what uh, Tony, uh, the, that, that sounding board uh, of McMahon, because, as I say, he, he was at an angle to a lot of uh, the, the consensus uh, that was around. He stood his ground uh, when he needed to st- stand his ground. He wasn't afraid to stand his ground. And he, he was one of those, you know, on Cusantori Gather Kjol. He was that defender at the gate of our, our music, you know. And... He stood up for it and he wasn't afraid to stand out from the crowd. And then he might get it wrong as well, you know, because there was many, many times I disagreed with him. And, uh, you know, we'd be absolutely at loggerheads on certain things. And uh, I'd have to convince him. Did you manage that? No. Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah, he said, ah, oh, no, I, you're right, no, he'd say. <laughs> but he was, I mean, he, he was quite a contradictory character, you know. McMahon was, was, as I said earlier, was complex, but he was contradictory and he, he would contradict himself, you know, and he would hold a position 
and he would do a, a big roundabout turn uh, and could be persuaded uh, differently. His music, his playing, when you hear it, how do you feel when you hear it? What do you feel of his music when you listen to him, especially now, I suppose? Well, Tony uh, spoke about what was between the notes, and like in all art, it's like what's you know, it's in the shadow, or what's in the dark, or what's up there in the corner. That's that's what really defines it. And the the space between the notes is where, in many cases, the great music happens, and when it's not too extroverted. Uh, I think McMahon made one think about that himself, but when one listens to his playing, he certainly uh, he. You know, he separated notes out in a way that uh, I think, as I said earlier, like he felt a certain frustration with the fact that he wasn't a piper or one of the decent instruments that he saw uh, as decent instruments. And he said that there was no bog hole deep enough for all the accordions in Ireland. And uh, that kind of a statement on its own, I think he was he was uh, he was prone to exaggeration, of course, in order to to kick up uh, a racket, and uh, that's that's somewhat what I meant when it, when when he would throw in the the shot of petrol, you know. Um, but the, the fact that the accordion confined him uh, and put a, a, a limit and a kind of a wall around him, I think made it a little bit more explosive upward, and uh, he certainly. On, on top of what had been done by the likes of Joe Cooley, uh, he he did raise the level of the accordion in terms of how it could be so well used in the putting across of the very deep emotions of uh, traditional Irish music. He he could bring in the dark stuff, and the spacing of the notes, like uh, when he played the the long note da 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 dum da 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 dum da da, you could you could hear the singular note of staccato piping. And then he had all the fiddle playing uh, in his in his music as well, and uh, he, he was a thunderous, uh, torrential type of personality. And that, when you put all of that into the ability he had, it was it was going to be great music. play the concertina and make his own fiddles which he used to play and my mother also played the concertina and on my mother's side some of my aunts used to play and as well as that you know it was a question of when the rain came and when there was no work being done people danced of the of the dark Saturday and Sunday evenings even afternoons there was a lot of dancing and music and I remember even <coughs> even when I was five and six in primary school that often in the weekends and in the evenings we suddenly found the house full and people were there. They came in out of the street, you know. My father had a little pickup truck and he had a small business which which he never ran very well and he had a habit of meeting musicians in the market on a Saturday afternoon and they would always arrive at the house and 
I can remember when 11, half past 11 and 12 would come being put to bed and you had to walk up the stairs between legs and thighs and shoulders and hands because people were sitting three across the stairs. The music in my ears and when I finally got to the bedroom I can remember I can remember the small four inch opening at the top of the window and you'd look down and you'd look on a row of skulls under the window. People standing with their backs to the walls and they feet tapping in time with the music downstairs. There wasn't any room in the house for them, so they stood outside. Well, what age were you, Tony, when you first started playing? About 14 or so, 14 or 15. I started on, on um, the accordion, although I never, I never since succeeded in liking the accordion as an instrument. Well, your father played the concertina. Why did you not start with the concertina? Um, I couldn't answer that question. Maybe it was because the concertina in which he played um, was held together by, by bright pink sticking plaster. And um, I started when an accordion was left by a famous accordion player. He was more of a bard than an accordion player called Joe Cooley who left an instrument behind him one day in the house and he left it for a couple of days and that's how I started. But talking to my father there, there was a reel he used to play um, called the flogging reel and in a way it's one of the first sort of it's one of the farthest back memories in my head simply because the tune had an atmosphere and a level of feeling which I associate with days of great depression in County Clare. But uh, my people came from outside Clare, from Kilmady, six, about six miles or so outside Clare, and um, this was an area very rich in music, which, which even still at that stage when I was growing up, um, held the last native Irish speakers. And I remember my grandfather sitting in a corner, and he spoke Irish, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's, a, terrible, it's a terrible regret I had that at the time with my Christian brother's book, Irish, that I couldn't speak to him, you know. He was an old man in his 80s that time, and he spoke Irish all the time to, to his wife, my grandmother. But um, these people who came from Kilmele and who came from the surrounding districts into Ennis, you know, they infused a spirit of sort of um, chaos or anarchy or brightness, you know. They, they came into the dull, dingy town where they sang Bowl Teddy Quill in the drinking clubs, you know. And these people brought the reels, the dances, the sets. They, they brought the long songs and the stories, you know. They brought the pish rogues with them. They brought the passion and they brought the fighting and they brought the blood off them, you know. Tony, you better tell us the name of that one. An old jig called Apples in Winter. And 
even the title, you know, Apples in Winter. Uh, the two ideas, the sort of brightness in the shadow, or the brightness surrounding the shadow. And that tune brings me right back to a man called Joe Cooley, who appeared suddenly in the summer of 1948 in Ennis. Um, my two brothers and my father were working in a house, renovating a house, there was building contractors, and uh, they heard the music coming out of the top window of the house opposite. And uh, my father, being a contractor and being a man who would hire a man for his ability to play an instrument rather than for his ability to work, immediately things began to happen. And so Cooley, Joe Cooley, arrived up at the house one or two nights afterwards. And from the time he came to Clare, he had a most peculiar effect on people. People seem to people seem to uh, respond respond to him in a in 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 a way which which um, which I, I don't know exactly how to put this, but watching people listening to Cooley was like watching people who were being affected or taken someplace. He actually took people along with him, and it was very normal for people to cry when he played, and I even saw this just a year and a half ago when he was at home. And he played only a hundred yards from where we're standing now at Slattery's and I had forgotten exactly what effect he did have on those who heard him, but I looked in the corner just near the door on the right hand side and there was a middle aged woman there crying softly. Just crying away for herself there, you know, and it brought the whole thing back. And I've never met a musician since who could do this. You know, there was his appearance and there was a terrible strength and power and passion of his music. You know, it, it was an avalanche. It was something nobody had heard the like of before in Clare. You had, the, you had a very narrow sort of introverted music in Clare. You know, you had the close fingering in the pipes. You had the Bobby Casey style fingering uh, on the fiddle, you know. And it was, it, was, it was depressive music, you know. But Cooley came along and, uh, you know, it was a bolt out of the blue. It was lightning. And I remember the first time he arrived outside my house on a big 600 motorbike with Joe Leary. And he had this accordion strapped to his back and I went out in short trousers. And I still can remember a very peculiar thing, you know. He had a very big hand and my hand that time I was six or seven. I don't know what I was. I can still get the feeling of my hand in a small ball inside his hand, you know. And that sort of thing set me on a path of breaking the sort of limits, the limits, the area in which a person plays, imposes on his music when he starts to play. And I found that ever afterwards I had a tendency to break out of these sort of limits, you know, the things like the layers of an onion. You, you start in the middle and you're, you're confined by time and by rhythm and by dancers, these sort of extraneous things. And, um, I discovered at a certain stage that I just had to start breaking out of it, you know. Tony McMahon speaking to Michael O'Donnell on the programme Here and Now in 1971. 
Noel Hill spoke earlier of Tony's powerful playing of dance tunes, but equally many people feel that his playing of slow airs is difficult to surpass. In 2016, an album of Tony's slow air playing called Slawnish and Gyol was released by Raelach Records. It was recorded a few years previous to that, and it was produced by fiddle player Cuivin O'Reilly. So I suppose, uh, why an album at all? Well, McMahon... Um, hadn't really made a solo record since 1972, the Kuei solo record, which is, you know, one of my favourite albums of traditional music. But he he now is, you know, 40 years on and really that was his only solo work. Uh, there was the McMahon from Clare in 2001, but that was kind of a collection of recordings from a, a long expanse of time um so i felt like he had a real artistic statement in him and that it needed to happen and um that was kind of the motivation i guess well I, i'm sure you remember yourself Eva, that at concerts uh tony would ask the audience for requests and inevitably somebody would ask for the scholar or the long note or various other dance tunes and he'd you know begrudgingly play them but afterwards he'd he'd go on and on about how crude they were and how much he disliked them and that the real music was in the slow airs so it was very much uh from him it, i i kind of felt then if well if he really believes that if he really believes that uh, the slow airs are the real music well then let's let's make a record of them of just slow airs if that's what he as an artist believes in then then we owe it to him to to make that statement i suppose what i can say is that the way he he played affected me in a very deep way in a way that few other musicians affect me and there was an extraordinary power to his playing and he played with a freedom and a I, I think of his playing sometimes like uh, brush strokes or, or paintbrush, like he, he really explored notes uh, with extraordinary clarity and uh, intention. Um, there's nearly something Japanese about his uh, whole aesthetic of playing stoairs. It's very, um, very thoughtful, very refined, very powerful. Um, and I think for him, the certainly Shano's singers uh, or certain Shannon singers were the pinnacle along with with the pipes I think he had an extraordinary reverence and love of uh, the Ilan pipes as an instrument with which to you know state a slow air he's just he was such an extraordinary musician I suppose I what what I really love is his music and going all the way back to that first record and the records with Noel Hill and had the power of his music on 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 the soul is something that um I'll I'll always love Viva. <laughs> Well, I'm not able to play anymore now, as you know. But when the slow air went well for me, I was trying to immerse myself in it and to escape uh, the slings and arrows of life by sinking into the loam of the snow airplane. And uh, Potts was always in my mind as a memory because only he could infuse a tune with the, the spirit of Ireland. 
and uh, I'm not saying I would be able to do that as good as Tommy Watts did, but at least I tried. Scarunt na gumponach, the parting of friends, played by Tony McMahon. Thanks for listening to the Rolling Wave podcast. For rights reasons, the music here is shorter than in the original broadcast. So if you'd like to hear the full versions of the music, you can go to rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash the rolling wave. This programme was first broadcast on the 17th of October 2021. Till the next time, Gormida Mahagi, Agaslan.